What I'm going to do is try to link something that is in any case linked in my life, and that is my work with the Alexander Technique and uh, the way that I feel that it links with a lot of philosophies, Eastern philosophies, Western philosophies, people who are looking and searching deeper to find out core truths about human existence. And uh, what I've found over the years of reading a variety of texts from a variety of people is that you can notice things coming up frequently. doesn't really matter who's speaking about it, but they seem to be coming to the same point, just that they have different journeys to get there. Now, I think that can also be said of Alexander, although he didn't overtly profess to be a spiritual person. In fact, he said that it was very important to first sort out what was going on on the tangible side, as in the body side of things, before trying to understand spirit and soul and matters of that nature. But at the same time, he said that we are what he called a psychophysical unity and that there is absolutely no separation between body and mind and spirit, which is immediately implied if you take those words separately. So he's coming from a point of view that there is no separation, which is, is extremely fascinating, which puts him in this bracket, really, uh, um, and uh, makes him quite, quite clearly a seeker into deeper truths. Now, Alexander came from personal experience of being a very sickly teenager who really uh, couldn't really cope with school. So he wasn't sent to school as a teenager, but he was sent out to ride horses in the countryside and to try to build up his constitution. And he was growing up in Tasmania, which is a small island south of Australia, uh, late 1900s. So, and so he's about you know teenager in the 18, 1880s or so. Coming up to about 1890, he was about a 20-year-old at that time. So what, what was interesting was that he developed a love of Shakespeare and decided that he wanted to be an actor as a profession. And he went ahead and did that and was being quite successful for quite a, I think, one or two years as a young man, having recital evenings and inviting people and they would come and they would pay him for it. And then with him what happened was that he lost his voice. So which of course is pretty dire, isn't it, if you're an actor. It's going to be the one thing that really challenges everything in your existence and that's what, what happened to him. So he really wanted to solve that problem in order to be able to carry on with his work. But the doctors couldn't solve it for him because they couldn't find anything wrong. And this is where for many people that I teach or that you see, we, we link, it links with their story because I'm frequently seeing people where there is no tangible or no visible problem if they go to the doctor and you, they go through x-rays and so on but they're still experiencing some sort of symptoms or dis-ease in their lives. Alternatively, they just generally don't feel on top of the world, so they might decide they want to try and get to the bottom of it, just like Alexander. So they've shared that common experience. But what happened to Alexander at that time was that he decided that he really wanted to solve the problem himself if the doctors couldn't solve it. And he began to observe himself. And what he noticed, so I'm, what I'm going to do is give you a small summary of this, the Alexander Technique, and then link it so that you can uh, follow where I'm coming from when I speak about the other deeper issues. So, so basically, he, he set up a room full of mirrors, 
and he got a job in an office in Sydney and he would go home every day at the end of his day in the office and go into the room full of mirrors and look at himself in the mirrors from all sides and he noticed and this is where I'm this won't be so helpful for people who are listening on the tape but uh, I'm going to demonstrate what I'm actually going to do is show Alexander's posture so what he noticed was that he was very rounded in his upper back and really didn't have what you would think of as good posture and he noticed he was tense so he noticed he was tightening so he began to think well maybe all this tension that's around is pressing on my voice box maybe that's the problem and the reason why he thought that was that he had noticed that in everyday speech he didn't really lose his voice it was only when he began to act and raise his voice and speak in a more pronounced way that the problem came up so he thought okay I must be doing something when I'm acting that is causing more tension, more pressure and my voice is giving way and it's not working properly. So this was really quite a new thought for that time to begin to think that maybe he was doing something to himself. Maybe he had some ability to take responsibility for it and it wasn't just a question of medication of some sort. That isn't so strange nowadays but it was for that time. So. So he was working on himself and he did the typical thing for four years which we're going to jump very quickly because it's not necessary for any of us to do it and that was he pulled himself up, I've got to sit up straight, I've got terrible posture, okay here I go sitting, sitting up straight and I'm going to make this better with all the effort. Now again common experience for most people you know the mother says sit up when she sees her teenage son or daughter slouching at the table you know. And everybody tries for two minutes, but it goes back down again very, very quickly. I don't know if you've all had that experience. So, but, but Alexander didn't change his way of working for about four years. He kept going in the same way. He kept plugging away at this, I'm going to stand up straight, I'm going to pull myself up and change this problem. I want to be an actor. And uh, until he finally admitted to himself that he wasn't getting anywhere at all. Now, at that point, a lot of people give up and just take painkillers or whatever, but he didn't. He was so much enamoured of the job of being an actor that he didn't give up. He decided he needed a different approach. And so, what he did was something I'm going to begin to link with other forms of spiritual practice, really. But what he did, and again, I'm, I'm just showing the people on the tape, I'm showing people profile of him slouching. So, what he did was he thought... Okay, I can see that I'm tightening the muscles of my neck. And I can see that that is causing me to pull my head back and down into my body. And I can see that my back is shortened. I'm losing length. And I can see that I'm narrowing myself. I'm pulling myself together. So he thought, okay, I'm going to work to prevent myself doing those things. I'm going to do, think about it and think the opposite of the tightening. Now, so what he did was, I'm tightening my neck, so I'm going to think it free. Or think of it not to tighten. I'm pulling my head back and down, so I'm going to think it forward and up, the opposite direction to the one I'm pulling it in. I'm shortening my back, so I'm going to think long to give my back space and I'm narrowing my back, I'm making myself bunched up, 
So I'm going to think of letting myself go and widening in that direction. But just think, not pull himself, not like the military thing. Just think about it. And what he began to find was that he could prevent himself from tightening by thinking into his body, by making connections with his body, with his thoughts. Okay, so this is what he began to do, and things began to change. He finally noticed that his posture was looking better. Every day he came home and thought in, and okay, thinking the neck free, thinking the head forward and up, thinking the back long, thinking it wide. But when he came to recite, he was thinking, right, now I've cracked it, you know. And he, he was standing in front of the mirrors, and he thought, I'm going to recite. And he went, to be or not to be. And what people can see who are here is that what I've just done is tightened myself up and pulled everything together again as he recited. So what happened was he realized he could think about it, but as soon as he went into applying it to an activity that was very close to his heart and was something he'd done for many years, he went straight back into his habits. So that's the first time I've used the word habits, okay, the habits of tightening that he had when he recited. So he hadn't quite cracked it yet, but he knew he was getting somewhere. And he made another breakthrough about two years later when he was working and thinking again. He was improving gradually, getting better at thinking in and not tightening up. And then he would thought again, I'm going to recite. But he thought, stopped and thought his neck free, thought his head direction, thought his back lengthening and widening. And then he just moved an arm. And what he didn't do was scrunch himself up and pull, shorten his back, tighten his neck, pull his head back into him and then move the arm. With just that little movement of the arm, he was able to keep on thinking himself not to tighten, keep the messages going in the body. And then he realized that he'd been being too ambitious. He'd been trying to change his habit with the thing that was most important to him in the world, and that was the acting. And the thing that he had practiced and practiced to do it in the way that was the tightening. So it was something very deep-seated in his subconscious. Okay, now I'm making links again with the subconscious. So this is where I'm just going to stop and get us thinking a little bit about what it's about. If, we, if I take you back to imagining a little baby learning to walk, and they practice, don't they? They crawl, first of all. They practice the rolling over before they even get to crawling hundreds of times. They practice going on crawling around, then they practice balancing up onto their two legs. Then they begin to, they fall over quite a lot, but they get up hundreds of times until they learn each stage by repeating the experience until they've put it from their conscious mind into their subconscious and it becomes automatic. Okay, so what they've done is created a habit so that they then walk around automatically and don't have to think about it. And their conscious mind is free to think about other things. But the question that Alexander was beginning to find out was, what happens if the habits that I've gained over the years are not ones that are particularly good for my body or for my, myself generally? What happens if those habits have been learnt by copying people who themselves aren't free but have been tightening or have attitudes to life that are very narrow and stiff and held, then, then those habits may not be appropriate. Okay, but they are in the subconscious. They've been practiced and put into the subconscious and are automatic. So 
all I need to do is, or all I'm doing is walking around, carrying on doing them in the way that I'm used to. Okay, so this is where you can always, by the way, interrupt and ask if anything's sounding a little difficult to understand. No. Um, so, but what he's finding out is this something to do with a relationship between the conscious mind, which is like the tip of the iceberg, and that mass of subconscious, which is going on all the time in all of our lives and enabling us to do the activities that we do during our everyday lives. And he devised this technique, how to bring something back up to the conscious, practice it, uh, learn how to release any inappropriate tension, and then practice it and repeat it until you change the habit in the subconscious and uh, basically can make a choice as a free person about what kind of habits you want to have. Really. Now, that's the Alexander Technique. Now, where does this actually link with spiritual practice is the main question. Well, I think that it links in one of the, the main parts of the Alexander Technique, and that's something I haven't mentioned yet. He discovered that the only way to really change a habit is to do what he called inhibition, to practice a process of inhibition. Now, inhibition is a word taken from the nervous system word for the neurons that fire in the nervous system. You have two sorts of neurons. You've got excitatory neurons that are telling the muscles to do something. So they're going, do, 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 and the muscles are going, okay, and they contract, and we move our hand. Okay. But we also have what are called inhibitory neurons. And they send messages in the body and they go, don't do, don't do, don't do. But they fire and they go and make communication with the body. We need them both. If we didn't have them both, then we would get the idea, for example, I want to cross this road, and we would immediately walk across the road. As soon as we had the wish, I'm going to walk across the road, there would be nothing to stop us doing that, whether there was a car coming or not. We would simply fire the excitatory neurons and our legs would be told to move and we'd walk across the road and splat. We'd be run over. Okay. So we need to have the facility in our bodies to send a message, to have an intention, I want to cross the road, to be firing those neurons, I want to cross the road, and then to be sending at the same time a message to say, but not yet. Just stop a moment, not yet, not yet. Wait for the car, don't go immediately. You are going to go across, but not yet. So we need them both. We need inhibitory neurons and excitatory neurons firing. Every single child, in the wonderful freedom that they have, is very much in balance with their inhibitory and excitatory neurons. That's I think you might have experienced a situation where uh, a child takes a bit of time to decide what it wants. You might, supposing you were to offer a child a drink or something, just say, would you like something? Say, would you like this drink of blackcurrant juice or something? The child would probably stop first, take a look at the person offering it, take a look at the drink, check whether it liked the drink, check whether it liked the person offering it. If it liked the drink but didn't like the person, it would turn and walk away. If it liked the person but not the drink, it would turn and walk away. If it didn't like either, it would decide it didn't want it, and he or she didn't want it. 
But if it decided it liked both the drink and the person, then the hand would come out and would accept the drink. Do you, do you see the process that's going on? So the child isn't going, oh, I'm offered a drink. Yes, of course, I always want a drink and I'll grab it. There isn't that network of habits built up yet in the child. And the inhibitory neurons are in balance with the excitatory neurons. But as we go through life, our stressful Western uh, habit-filled, be quiet, do everything correctly and right existence, we build up an imbalance in our bodies and we're firing excitatory neurons a lot more than the inhibitory ones. Okay, so this is up to now has all been about Alexander Technique. But this core, how to change muscular tension patterns of needing to inhibit the response in your body to stop the response, to say no to it, is very, very similar to meditation. Now, if any of you have done meditation, you'll know that the idea is to slow down your thoughts and to put a stop to the constant firing of those thoughts, the message giving that they do, because when people meditate, they're calming their nervous system down because what they're doing is stopping the constant record, the sort of monkey gibberish that's going on in the head, that is actually sending those excitatory neurons all the time to the body. And uh, so, so what they're doing is actually sending inhibitory neurons to the body when they meditate. And the body then lets go of a lot of tension. And when we let go of that tension, we begin to get more into the very moment that we're in. So this, is, this has got to do with all the kinds of philosophies that say what we need to do is be in the here and now, be in the moment. Because the thing that creates muscle tension is not being in the moment. It's tightening because of past experiences, sending those messages in the body to do, 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 regardless of whether that is appropriate for the moment. Okay, so because there's quite a lot of talk, I'd just like to punctuate it with a little bit of looking at this, which is something we don't normally do, <laughs> think about how we're actually built. Yeah, that's got funny legs, yes. Which I'm doing is showing a skeleton now. So, this is, this is what we look like inside before we have muscles. Now you can see it's lost, there's lots of bones, aren't there? But what, what is interesting is, when you look at how anatomy, but uh, anatomy in movement, we have this image of a skeleton which is completely false. Because if you take away the muscles and the tendons and the ligaments, this would not be stuck together with pins like it is now. It would just be a pile of bones on the floor. They're all loose. They're all individual bones. The only thing keeping them in shape like that are muscles and ligaments and tendons. So there it would be, a, a pile of bones. That's what we all are, really, in terms of the bones. We're not like this. So we frequently get false pictures when we look at books of how we, we're built. So what is it that is keeping our body in shape? Now, there's a wonderful book that I was talking to Nigel about just the other day, which is called The Wisdom of Insecurity. And this is why the title of this talk is Not Holding On, because it links again with these kind of books in the sense that 
What is keeping the skeleton in shape is the reaction of the muscles. If there's a bone in, in between my hands there, and my hands are two muscles, when the bone goes a bit over to that side, this muscle will contract a bit, and this one will let go a bit. It's just stopping us falling over. If I do this, there's contraction going up on that side. If I move over this way, some of the muscles are reacting to that to keep me from falling over completely. If I lean forwards, the muscles in my back are turning up to stop me falling flat on my face. So there is a constant reaction of contracting, letting go, contracting, letting go, contracting, letting go throughout the body, adjusting, constant adjusting. And what people do when they come into an Alexander lesson and you put your hands on them, they're going like this. They're rigid, they're holding, more or less. You know, they're holding on. Because as the way that we have been educated has educated us into a philosophy of seeking security and being afraid of the flow and being afraid of the moment and being afraid of the fact that we don't actually have anything tangible to hang on to. We are really just one moment experiencing life, experiencing life, experiencing life, experiencing life from one moment to the next. And we find it a very, very frightening thing. And we're not really educated to cope with it like that. So we're constantly trying to stop that and to deny that and to hold on. And that reflects in muscle tension. You see how it links in that way. So people are hanging on to themselves to try and make themselves safe. But what they're actually doing is tightening themselves up and causing themselves to be less able to react in their bodies to the moment. So they're less able. You can Again, you can think of the child that falls over time and time again and never hurts itself. It doesn't, why do you think it doesn't hurt itself when a child falls over? It moves with it, doesn't it? It's like... When you catch, you get taught, don't you? Catch a cricket ball, don't leave your hand where it is. You'll break your wrist. You'll, the, the balls are speeding. You have to go with it, don't you? Yes, knocking into that. You have to go and, ex and take the movement and, go and move with it. So it's the same as I was showing you with the bones. If the muscles are holding on, then they can't adjust as well. They can't react to the situation. So people injure themselves and they get pain and so on because something comes at them and they're rigid and they're tight and then it breaks or it pulls a tendon or a ligament and something like that. But a child can fall over with ease because the body just goes and reacts and contains uh, or adapts to the quicker amount of energy coming at it and then copes with it. So, yes. It's great. We're built with all sorts of mechanisms in there to cope with movement and, and constant um, containing of movement and adjusting to movement. Okay, so I'm going to get you to look at one of the, the bits of paper that I've sent round. So if we look at number two, this will tie in quite well. So number two says, we are always seeking security in constants which do not exist. This is the incredible ability of the human race for self-deception. Self-deception automatically demands a doing instead of an allowing or a being. 
The doing, therefore, also becomes a diversion of attention from what is. Now, what I thought we would do, because this is really fairly an informal sort of sharing, is take these quotes and just see if they trigger any responses in you, and I can link it with just the way I work with that, because that's to do with uh, getting an understanding of how it's working in in the self, in the body, and linked with basically this wonderful instrument that we have at our disposal that we tend to treat with less than the respect we might treat our car or something, you know. So it's getting to have some understanding of how it works and linking that with this, the fact that it is very important to help to get an idea of letting go in life rather than holding on in in life. That we're trying all the time to control our lives when we actually can't, and and when we do it, we're bound to fail because we're setting up. A, this is this is where I'm, I'm linking very much with Alan Alan Watts. We're setting we're setting ourselves up for failure because we're trying to force something that is greater, like Nancy's saying, into a smaller concept than what is actually going on all the time. I've done a lot of a lot of work for myself linking what Paul Brunton says with Alexander, basically, and uh, feeling very much that that we we often have we have basically a situation where we read deep wisdom, and yet we don't know how to put it into practice. Now, for me personally, the Alexander technique is one pra- very practical, pragmatic way of learning to deal with it in things like how you pick up your cup of tea how you react in your everyday, seemingly mundane and unimportant activities. Okay. But now this is a this is a really nice section from my Paul Brunton book. It takes a bridge from meditation to what Paul Brunton calls inspired activity. Okay. And what I feel that Richard was talking about the other day when he said actually everything is a meditation. Everything becomes you know, activity itself can be a meditation. You, when you're a master, which you know, um, you know, some people I guess are, you know, you're basically in that state and you're active and you're doing things. You're not taking yourself out. So again, we we tend to meditate and then we go back and carry out our daily lives with all our normal habits and problems they have, and then we come back and meditate. So we're seesawing all the time. Unless we find some way to bridge that gap. Do you, see, do you see what I'm saying? So we need to bridge the gap. Now this is about, it explains this quite well. It's from a chapter called, Is the World an Illusion? So this remembrance of and concentration on the silent void whilst engaged in the midst of bustling activity is admittedly not easy and requires nothing less than genius for its successful consummation. It is called in the Chinese hidden teaching, Wu Wei. An adulterated fragment of this teaching exists in Lao Tzu's little text entitled Tao Te King, and the phrase is usefully translated as meaning non-doing or inaction. This is something that Alexander Technique calls inhibition, which we also speak about as non-doing, or not reacting. Okay, so I'm drawing a bridge. So non-doing, or inaction. 
Both Western and Eastern mystics have erroneously thought this means to refrain from action by living in monastic retreat. The correct meaning is the inner realization of the basic voidness, the immateriality of existence, while outwardly taking that materiality as real for practical purposes. To practice inaction in the sense in which it has been used in oriental mystical works like the Bhagavad Gita and the Tao Te Ching does not mean physical inertia. This is a materialistic misapprehension. It means to effect an entrance into the void and then to carry the sense of its emptiness into the very midst of activity, into the heart of physical existence. We have to comprehend that despite appearances, the hidden teaching does not lead to utter nihilism or to blank negativism, but rather to what is most real in life. Hence, if most mystics envisage their ultimate physical goal as a state of inspired inactivity, all philosophers envisage their ultimate physical goal as a state of inspired action. And in, the, in terms of Alexander technique, that is what happens when the inhibitory neurons and the excitatory neurons are in balance. Because when they're really in balance, you're not thinking about the past. Now, I'm getting onto memory now, see. And you're not thinking about the future. Because fears about what happened in the past, that they may be going to happen again, will tighten your muscles and anticipatory fears about the future and so on will tighten your muscles. So when you think of inhibiting your, your muscle tightening, you're getting into the moment. Does that, so I hope that's, that shows the link again. Now, now without anybody, um, I actually went the other way round. I found the Alexander Technique and then started to read these texts. But I found that it's always the same when you ask somebody to, to sink in and to free the muscle. If, if they're, they're thinking about the past or thinking about the future, they won't free it because they won't be actually there in their body. That They'll be somewhere else. So I'm asking people to think into it here and now and to be in it here and now. And when they get into the here and, and not do anything, just think of letting go. And then it goes, it, it lets go. Our very abilities are also things that, that cause us some problems. Um, that means that the fact that we have the faculty of memory and the faculty of being able to think into the future <coughs> and plan also makes us pay a price for it in the sense that we, we can remember things that were bad experiences and we, we kind of get to expect them to happen again. So Alexander said that we're, on, we're in the middle of evolution. We're not anywhere near the end. It's very arrogant for us to think of ourselves as at the pinnacle of an evolutionary process. We are in the middle of it. And evolution needs to go further in, our own, in, in the direction of greater self-knowledge and greater understanding of how we function so that we learn what to do or how to work with our faculties. So he's a very, very positive man. He called, he called it the um, Man's Supreme Inheritance is one of the titles of his books. They were all written at the, uh, uh, early in the uh, 20th century. 
So man's supreme inheritance is his conscious mind and his conscious ability. And we are, at the moment, not in full understanding of how we use that yet. We have a lot in common still with with unconscious and and we use our subconscious a great deal. Um, And we only use our conscious. We're very not very practiced at it yet. So this is this is Alan Watts in a chapter called Pain and Time. Right. It's about time. So he's talking about thinking about things in the future and anticipating with fear or thinking about things in the past. And he says, This is the typical human problem. The object of dread may not be an operation in the immediate future. It may be the problem of next month's rent, of a threatened war or social disaster, of being able to save enough for old age, or of death at the last. This spoiler of the present may not even be a future dread. It may be something out of the past, some memory of an injury, some crime or indiscretion which haunts the present with a sense of resentment or guilt. The power of memories and expectations is such that for most human beings, the past and the future are not as real, but more real than the present. The present cannot be lived happily unless the past has been cleared up and the future is bright with promise. Okay, so we're constantly thinking about the past or thinking about the future. We're very, very rarely really here and now. Okay, should we have a look at another quote and maybe that will trigger something? (laughs) So... You will not be able to understand the the world, this is number three, you will not be able to understand the world better than you understand yourself. The lamp which can illumine the world for you must be lighted within yourself. So that's Paul Brunton again. So it's really just a little pointer to say, you know, we, we shouldn't look outside all the time for answers to the deeper issues. And number five is similar to that. It is here, in a simple, common situation that one finds oneself, that philosophy has its place, just as much as in the profoundest movement of thought. So it's a bit Zen, really, isn't it? The Alexander Technique has been called the Zen of the Western world because it's about how do I drink my cup of tea in the here and now? How do I walk down the street? How am I sitting? How am I going to get up? How am I gesturing? How am I ultimately reacting to someone shouting at me? So in, in a sentence it's, how do I react to the stimuli of everyday life? Do I ra- react with a trigger, like Pavlov's dogs? Do you all know Pavlov's dogs? Or how do that? Do I react, the bell rings and I get triggered and the habit kicks in? Or does the, does the telephone ring? And I decide whether I want to answer it or not. <laughs> you know, uh, do I jump immediately if somebody presses my buttons because uh, they haven't done the washing up? How do I react? You know, am I a slave to all my habits or am I f- a free a person taking a free choice about how I react? Have I copied the reactions that my parents had to such an extent I'm just doing them all the same? You know, these are the issues that come up in learning the the Alexander Technique. Now, habits can be very good because there's no criticism or judgment in all this because 
if you had the good fortune to have people around you who taught you good habits, then you will have less problems physically and less symptoms as time goes on. But the majority of us are influenced by the stresses and strains of the people that we've been brought up by, and uh, and they have by their parents or by their environment. So, and they have by theirs, and they have by theirs. So, uh, it is just simply observation and working out how to get out of it, the, the vicious circle of habit. So, a lot of our psychological work that we're all trying to do on ourselves is about letting go of that and trying to get into the moment and not constantly being triggered and reacting from past experiences. But Alexander did say that no therapy is complete without addressing the muscle tension which is left in the body and is, keeps triggering it. <coughs> this is taking us a full circle because he's saying there is no separation between your mind and your body. We're, it's not as separate as you think. So, so you, can't, you can't address one without addressing the other. I mean, in some cases when people understand where their fear is coming from, it will release some muscle tension in their body. But more often than not, the fear, supposing somebody has been in a war or something and they've had shell shock, that will be triggered. They've got this in their, in their body and that will make them feel emotional in a certain way because the body has still got the fear in it. It's holding on. It's telling your mind. It's going backwards and forwards, saying something is wrong, you're really frightened, you're tight. It's going backwards and forwards all the time. The message is, don't only go one way. The body is also telling you how you feel. It's sort of backwards and forwards. It's a unity. Okay, so... Now, how are we trying to change it? This is... This is uh, how do we work on it? Well, meditation is one way, um, because it gives us at least a gap and a, and a rest and a time to, to stop and switch off. And then to begin to learn to take that mindfulness into, into life. <coughs> and uh, working to deliberately release your muscle tension and therefore learning how to be more in the moment is another, another way of going about it. And I'm sure there are many other techniques to help us. But it, it does seem quite a good idea to have some techniques when we begin to understand how we've got ourselves into where <coughs> we're at, you know. So this is, this is where they've all come from, all the, 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 again, the wise teachers from the East and so on. They tend to be practices, don't they, of some sort, to help us. So let's look at number four and see what that brings up. Actually, it's really just a, a reiterating what I was saying. So it says, people's attention span is notoriously short. Why is this? Because mind-wandering means that the experience of the moment must constantly compete for its place in the individual's thoughts. So if we're wandering to our past or wandering to the future, we're having great difficulty being present. So it's competing, isn't it? There's a conflict going on again inside us. Okay. Now, which ones haven't we had? Number six. The habit of too quick reaction to stimuli in general causes most of the misunderstanding, misconceptions and misdirection of effort shown by most people today. That's quite a big one as well, isn't it? The habit of too quick reaction to stimuli in general causes most of the misunderstanding, misconceptions and misdirection of effort shown by most people today. So, by being quick, we're going to trigger the subconscious reaction. We have no choice. If you're going to go 
stimuli, response, stimuli, response, stimuli, response. You're just going to do it the way you've done it hundreds of times. Look, but that comes from schooling as well, mm. where you're, you're on edge and someone asks you a question, you think you have to react quickly. Mm. You know, so again, conditioned. Mm. Totally. Children and, and the fear of a child that it has to perform mm. and say something. All the time, isn't yeah. it? Really deep. It's happened to us all. Mm. So... Um, this is another thing to do to do with having ah let's turn the page <laughs> nice link that one so you see number 13 very very much a common one we all know love your neighbor as yourself haha now I put that in because the one thing we're very bad at is loving ourselves and that's what I think this phrase really means and it's it's it is from obviously from Jesus and so on but uh, living loving your neighbor as yourself you can only love your neighbor if you love yourself this is also something that comes up again and again and again in teaching so so learning to look after yourself and giving yourself respect and a chance to 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 be free and not tightened is not a selfish thing to do because it will enable you to to give more to others in a more appropriate way okay so a lot of people do try to give all the time to other people when they, they, they need to, first of all, to learn some self-love and some self-caring. Because we've all been conditioned, haven't we, into this pressured existence. And, and that it's selfish. I think we've all been con con conditioned into thinking it's selfish to think of ourselves. But ultimately, we're pleasanter to be around if we do look after ourselves. Yeah. So it's but in the end, you mm. run out of energy because you've given it all out. suddenly realise mm. that the battery's flat. Yes. And also, it's very hard to give if you've not, not really got to that point of self-love without expectation of return. And, and it builds up all sorts of funny habits going on and things going on. And uh, sometimes it, we're giving not, not with the real wish to give it because it's beyond our energy level. And uh, this is something we talk about, isn't it, sometimes? So if you give beyond your energy level, there's a conflict set up. And people do... If you're talking oneness again, so again I'm making links, we pick up on a lot more in our interaction with people than we maybe think we do. So, so if somebody is really feeling they're unable to give and then they try to give anyway, there may well be subconscious messages going backwards and forwards between the people where the help is not as much help as really would be the best. That means it isn't really possible to help someone else when one's needy oneself in that way not not too efficiently anyway but what it's really admitting is that uh, we do we do need to 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 address our own neediness quite a lot at the moment i think as the human race you know and to to try to break some of these habits that are actually i think there's getting to be a greater level of exhaustion amongst people if you speak to any anybody it's sometimes it's hitting isn't it it's it's hitting a point when it isn't possible to continue in the way that a lot of people are going on and that's possibly why the growth of these teachings is actually coming back and they come there they're, they're being looked for and searched for because because it's hitting fed up factor you know or inability to go on at that point let's look at number 14 which is really nice this is Alexander. You are quite perfect, except for what you are doing. <laughs> so it's, it's now, 
if you're going to work with your habits, which is what I'm teaching people, aren't we all just really good at feeling that we're attacked the minute we, we're told something isn't 100% about ourselves? Okay. And we feel that that's criticism and we feel it's judgment. Now, now, if you're going to change something, you can't change it unless you actually realize that it's not terrible that you, need, that you have something you want to change. You know, that isn't a really a big failing at all. It's something that we have in common with everybody around us. So realizing this is also where I think Alexander subconsciously, you know, not knowing it, is linking again with his masters. You know, he's saying you are quite perfect except for what you're doing. It is another aspect of the Alexander technique in the sense that people have these habits of tightening and they think that they are their, their, their habits are themselves. So they think, if I let go, I've had this just, just quite frequently actually, but <coughs> if I let go of this tendency to hold myself there, then there's nothing left. You know, then that's me. I do all this. I go around and I, I, you know, I go cycling every day and I push myself to the limit and I run a marathon, you know, and I, I make sure I'm always on time at work and I'm, I'm doing this and, and this is me. This is my identity. Well, it isn't really, is it? These are all just, just habits. There is something beneath that. And um, I think ultimately, again, many people I teach, I can't speak always openly about a link to some spiritual thinking as I can here but ultimately if you believe there's a core to your person if you believe in things like oneness and and that your habits are not you and not your identity then you'll be more able to let them go because you won't be so afraid of letting them go you won't feel you'll lose everything if you let it go and yet it's still scary number 15 says Psychophysical equilibrium cannot be achieved unless the habits which obstruct it are changed. Again, that's, that's Alexander, pure, basically. And um, what it means is that, again, a phrase I say to pupils, we have a mindset. There's a problem. What's the solution? Okay, I've got a problem. I'm going to find the solution and do something about it. Now, Alexander Technique changes it on its head. I've got a problem. Stop doing the problem. Okay, do you see the difference? I've got a problem. I'm creating something that's a problem. I better stop doing that. Rather than, where's the solution? I have to run around and find somebody to, you know, help me do this or something. So, 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 so it is very important that, that we realize that very often we are creating the problems that we and we just need to stop the best the best way to understand that is that nice little, little phrase from um, Alexander's niece who's been teaching for 60 years if you're hitting your head against a brick wall it isn't going to help to start kicking the wall as well there is only one thing that will help if you're hitting your head against the brick wall and that's to stop and that again is something where a lot of us are doing we're hitting our heads in various ways against brick walls and you know again we're a bit afraid of just stopping doing that because of the what we might hit if we if we do stop number seven links with that the means used being wrong the end result will be equally wrong besides being unwanted and perhaps unexpected that's Paul Brunton yeah 
Now, this is linking with the concept of karma, really. If you think about karma. Actually, I'd just like us to read another... Number nine as well, and then we'll link the two. Number nine says, Of course we all create our own lives, because there is nothing but the moment. Our concept of our lives is our own mental creation. So if there really is nothing but the moment, then we, we have ideas, don't we? We have a story of ourselves in our heads. We have our picture of ourselves all the time. We've built up our past. We've built up our personality. We've built up all these structures and things. And we don't realize that that's our concept of our lives. It's our mental creation. So it will influence our experience. It'll, it'll begin to have an effect on what kind of experiences we, ex we draw to us. Where, where we give our attention. So we are actually taking in a lot of information and, and we're filtering it. And then we choose somewhere along the line what we give our attention to, don't we? We, we pick it out, what we really give our attention to. There's a lot more going on than we choose to give our attention to. So our whole personality and our interests and our concept of ourselves and our slant on life and all this is affecting what we choose to give our attention to and is affecting our experience of our lives. And in that way we create our lives. We have a choice what we give our attention to, but we often don't realize that. I was going to link that with number seven, which says the means being wrong, the end result will be equally wrong, besides being unwanted and perhaps unexpected. So supposing we, we really wish for something to happen, we want to be a success in our job or something, but we're going about it by putting a lot of pressure on everybody around us or something, then what comes out of that will be affected by the way we, we go about it, by the means that we em employ. And we often don't understand why we get the certain results in our lives that we get, because we're not paying enough attention to how we're going about things. And that's causing an effect on what comes back at us. Again, it's about understanding a little more how we're creating our own experience and how we are, our habits are building up and setting us up. Now, really, my experience of all this stuff that we're talking about now is that, strangely enough, if you, if you have a thought and you have a very clear intention and then you let it go, it often happens. If you have a thought and then you really try to make it happen, it doesn't. Now, why could that be? The intention sets something in motion, I think. Your intention. Well, we're linking again with all sorts of things, like Emmanuel-type type thoughts or, or, or various things, again, that I've read. If you want something, you're actually projecting the thought out into the universe that you don't have it. You're asserting the fact that it's lacking in your life. These are, these are linking with many of these spiritual teachings. But I think our habits are so deep that that's why we often have some understanding of all these things, and yet they, they still don't bring the effects, because the way we've been brought up, as you were, you were saying, that the conditioning that we have is really very deep. And we're only just beginning to learn and understand this kind of paradox that's going on, uh, of, of, of projecting and understanding intention and yet not being attached to the result and constantly asserting the fact in our minds that it's not actually in our lives. But if you look at number 12, this is great because it kind of all fits with this. 
prepare for peace and not war. <laughs> now, if you basically, if you prepare yourself, if you attend to the, the way you're going, to, going about doing things, you know, the means whereby, if, you, if you're in, you have a clear intention, then although the habits, they're very deep, we're, we shouldn't underestimate habits. Okay, this is what we're all talking about, really. We're really at the beginning of, of understanding our interaction with our experience of the world and with our, and understanding even ourselves. This is what that one is. You'll only have as great an understanding of the universe as you have of yourself. So we're at the beginning. So it'll be very strange if all these thoughts that we're having and, un and insights we're having would function all the time because more often than not, we're having one... one clear intention with no attachment and, and free f letting it go to 50 or 100 still tight wanting thoughts going on there yes well, well when you read PB on this Paul Brunton on this sort of thing on karma we're talking about karma as well he, he thank goodness he doesn't paint a simple picture about it because some of the some of the teachings that are going on around the place make it all seem too simple and then you get disillusioned don't you because you think well why why is that not making sense? Well, well, what he's pointing out is that, that, first of all, we can't remember a lot of our thoughts that have happened sometime before and have set impulses in, in motion. Secondly, we're, we are part of a collective consciousness and a, and a general energy and trend, even the consciousness of the country that we're in. And, uh, and we, are, we are tied in. We're all linked in together. It's a quite fantastic and amazing network of things going on. Yeah. Then we have our confused thoughts and our habits. So we may believe that we're thinking constantly with intent, but you've probably got some self-doubt going on as well, which would be very strange if you didn't, because most human beings do. So th it, isn't, it isn't as clear that when you really look at it, you can understand why we all have messed up, strange, peculiar, out-of-control experiences of our, our lives. Because in a way, that's, that's the way we, are, we have been projecting our thoughts for quite a long time. Now, I'm going to make an amazing link that you've just said to muscle tension. Okay, now this is always, this is, this is why I'm speaking to you now, to link it with that. When you have a muscle, if I now stand up, when you have some, a muscle tension pattern, and this is a personal one of mine, I used to play the violin, <coughs> right? So when I first started doing this, my arm tended to hang like this. Can you see that that looks a bit peculiar? It's hanging, actually, at this angle. It was because I had tightening in my arm from taking the violin up like this. And so I had some shortened muscles and tension pattern. Now, I used to get right into this non-doing and inhibiting of the Alexander technique. Okay, all I have to do is not get, you know, let go of everything. And it doesn't work. Now, do you know why it doesn't work? That's because the messages are already going in the body, the habit messages. So if I just collapse and non-do, completely non-do, the pathways, the, the things that will happen in the body will go the path of least resistance, which is the habit, the one it's used to, will just go. So this is the strange thing about the Alexander Technique. I teach people to think in to their body, which is a very active thing to do, thinking, but not to do it. Now what that would mean is that um, having an intention but not doing, not going overboard and not tightening and not, not doing that is, is very important to have intention because otherwise you're letting the past habits have free reign. Does that make sense? You can't really, you can only 
you can't have completely nothing. We live in a world where things are happening, where things are going on, where there are energetic things going on. If we just don't think or have an intention, if we just collapse and flop and say, let God do it, we're actually often letting the, the, the habit, habitual way of thinking that we have take hold instead of having a very clear intention for change and for good and for love and uh, whatever, I'm just putting those words out now. Uh, a very clear intention, but not tyrannizing and not getting tight about it and not trying too hard and so on, but really having an intention so that it's setting that against the tendency to make scapegoats of people and all these habits that we have and, and blame and get tight and, and so on. Does that sort of give some some indication of how it reflects in how to change your body uh, gives some insights again into what we're actually doing psychologically as well and what we're doing in our lives.